What up listeners, what up viewers, uh, it's me Tim, coming to you today from uh, Lexton Gathering Grounds, a little nature reserve in Lexton, a suburb of Colchester, a town in the southeast of England, a country in the northwestern hemisphere. Um, thanks for joining me once again. Um, today's podcast is a conversation with uh, another co-worker, another person who I met through work, and actually my manager. So don't embarrass me, guys. Don't say anything that's going to get me in trouble. Um, so it's a conversation with Raj Winder, Raj to her friends and subordinates. Um, and Raj is a super interesting person. Um, she is a Sikh and was brought up in a predominantly Sikh family, although you'll hear as we talk that it's not quite as black and white as a complete 100% Sikh lineage, just like for most of us, it's not completely black and white that we're 100% whatever, Christian, Muslim, white, European, African, whatever. Uh, it's a melting pot, and that becomes really clear uh, in this conversation with Raj, I think. Um, I wanted to talk to Raj because we often find ourselves, you know, we have, we have meetings at work where we have to talk about very important things, uh, and we find ourselves kind of digressing onto the conversation of spirituality, faith, religion, and those kinds of issues. Um, and often uh, about family as well. You'll see in this conversation, really, actually... This is a conversation about family um, and how family shapes and informs our worldview, our spirituality, our understanding of ourselves. Um, so we start the conversation with, uh, with Raj giving a real kind of uh, history of her family in India and in the UK. Um, and then we move on to talk much more in a way that's much more close to home. Uh, about the importance of family and the people we grew up with and the things that they tell us. Um, the things that they tell us have become part of who we are and the things that they tell us that we want to challenge and push back on. Um, so really, that's kind of what this conversation is all about. I won't say too much more because it speaks for itself. Um, and speaking of speaking, you'll see that Raj is good at speaking. Um, so I don't really need to ask many prompting questions. Uh, just... I pipe up once or twice in there, but really this is, uh, this is Raj steering the conversation in a way which I think is really interesting and great. Um, okay, so that's podcast business. Uh, aside from that, what's going on with you guys? I don't know why I ask. You can't tell me. Well, you could, you could message me. Send me a message on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Um, I have, where are we? We're at the beginning of June, um, which means, check it out, if you stop and listen, there's birds singing, there's the gentle spring breeze flowing through the branches of the trees around me, and there's the sound of the A12. As traffic gathers pace, as local lockdown restrictions begin to lift. So that's weird, isn't it? Um, I'm finding it kind of hard getting my head around 
COVID restrictions lifting, having got so used to them for the past, I mean, really the past year, but especially the past six months or so. Um, and not entirely being sure how comfortable or relaxed to be with that. Um, on the one hand, people are getting vaccinated. I've been vaccinated. I had my first, my first dose of Team Pfizer uh, on Friday or Sunday today, so two days ago. Um, so on the one hand, that's all optimistic and exciting and hospitalizations and deaths are still super low. But there's a dreaded Indian variant, which we're all very scared of um, and that the media tells us is going to destroy us all. And it's kind of hard to know how relaxed to be. I've actually got a week off this week, um, which is why I'm so relaxed on a Sunday afternoon. I am off to see my family tomorrow, my mum and my dad and my niece and my sister and my sister's partner, um, which will be great. And I have some other friends, plans to see friends, to meet for meals and that kind of thing. But like I say, I just don't really know how relaxed should we all be about it? How distant should we be? Should we hug? Legally we're allowed to, but does that mean it's okay? I don't really know. So I guess we'll just have to keep on kind of watching this space um, and seeing what unfolds. I'm at a crossroads. I don't mean in terms of my life. I mean, literally, I am at a crossroads in this nature park, um, the Lexan Gathering Grounds. So called, by the way, because it's where natural spring waters gathered. Uh, not because of any shamanic rituals or anything like that. So that'd be cool. And who knows, maybe once upon a time there were shamanic rituals here. But as I understand it, it's just called the Gathering Grounds because waters gathered here and this was uh, until 50 years ago or whatever, um, a source of water. And it's still owned, I think, by a water company. Um, although it is now a nature reserve, uh, so there isn't much going on on it. Um, okay, I don't really have much else to say. I've introduced a podcast. I've waffled on a bit about COVID for a bit. Maybe I'll just keep this uh, short and sweet this month. Um, so thanks for being here. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Raj. I certainly did. And if you're still here at the end, I'll see you then. Okay, bye. just kind of introduce you um uh as well as my manager at work um but also somebody who I've really enjoyed and appreciated talking to about religion spirituality kind of growing up in a different culture with a kind of uh in a religious setting which is quite different to kind of mm -hmm. the the kind of secular landscape of the UK um and I just thought it'd be great to kind of have your story and to kind of just uh, again kind of for selfish reasons because i'm interested in it and want to learn more and i'm kind of curious about kind of your your story and your background but also i just think it'll be it's going to be really interesting for the people who are listening um so i wonder if a good place to start would be right at the beginning so right at the very beginning of your life um now 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as I remember you telling me, you weren't born here in the UK. Is that right? Um, I was born in the UK. I was born in the UK. Um, uh-huh. I got that my, wrong. My, my family's, because it's almost, it feels sort of wrong to start off with me because my family's sort of relationship with the UK started probably even two generations even before me, basically. Oh wow! Um, you know, so I was that's way off. I'm aware of, yeah. As 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 much as I'm aware of, and it's it's something more to investigate. Basically, it's always something that I've wanted to do, and it's something that I need to sort of think about how you go about doing it. Because you know, India as a country is very good at sort of keeping records of your ancestors, and it's something that I'm really quite keen to do at some point. But as far back as I, as I know, so on my on my sort of mom side of the family, her her um her uncle so her so my grandfather her father's brother um was in the british indian army um so he was a soldier and in those days um you know when you served your term some of the incentives were you were um given access sort of um to the commonwealth countries basically um you'd get more land um and so he sort of came to, well, the story kind of goes, so my grandfather was a bit of the rebel. He was a naughty one. Okay. <laughs> um, You know, not so educated, focused, very much sort of liked his alcohol. He liked his drink. He liked his meat. And so, you know, the family solution at that time was actually let's send him abroad because he'll put a bit more responsibility on his shoulders. And he had the opportunity to come to the UK. So your grandfather that, was in India. Is that right? He was in India at the time, yeah. So my, okay. my both of my parents came from Punjab. So this is probably back in the sort of the fifties or the sixties, I reckon. And um, so he got the he got the visa, as I understand, but he didn't want to come. <laughs> and, <laughs> Fair well, enough. <laughs> his brother took the opportunity, and he came to the UK. Um, and his family then came over, and they settled in Southall. Okay. And so that's really interesting that that generation, that's what was happening. The generation previously was even, it was, it's really interesting because it sort of speaks to, I think, probably not just the Sikh community, to the Indian community, the opportunities, but also sort of the tension um, of, you know, your sense of belonging, um, your sense of community, your country. And that, at that particular point in time, so this is probably going back to my great grandfather's basically. On my on my mom's side, so my great grandfather, her maternal grandfather, was actually um, a freedom fighter. He wanted independent India. Wow! And so, and we, you know, I sort of only got to meet the man. And this is something I, I really sort of like. You know, this is these are times when you wish that you were grown up when you'd had a chance to sort of speak to them about these experiences. But I remember when I was five years old and we went back um, to India for um, my uncle's wedding and we went to see my my mom, my mom, mom's grandparents. Um, and they were both sort of probably like 80s, 90s. And he, he had his back sort of hunched over. But he's sort of his name is um, written in sort of historical records as a person who was sort of, you know, fighting for independence back in those days. And he spent... 10 years in and out of prison, basically as a political prisoner during those times. And, you know, I, yeah, yeah. And, you know, at the time, so Amritsar, which is where the Golden Temple is based, was also quite a political hub, as I understand it, from the stories I hear. So my uncle was quite close. So my mum's brother was close to his grandfather. 
Um, and they did have my my uncle came when my when my mom came. My uncle was about probably about five years older than her, so he'd had more time to sort of be a bit more conscious and aware of those times. And so he talked about he's spoken to me about some of you know the conversations that he had with his grandfather, and he said you know there's there were there were there was a time when um, they you know back in those days people didn't. They, People didn't use red trousers. They used to wrap a sheet, which we call a dhoti, basically, which is a very traditional form of dress. And through that, he said you could see grooves on the back of his legs, basically, from being a political prisoner. Um, because in those days, you know, sort of the, you know, the convention around torture didn't come till about later on, um, you know. Wow. So, so he was tortured like, in prison. So he was tortured. He was tortured um, because, you know, and he wow. was very politically engaged, Um he, you know, um, he, you know, my uncle was saying that his name is down on sort of political conventions that took place in Amritsar at the time, basically. Um, there's a lot of sort of interesting things around that time. Um, and I quite like to sort of learn more about him if it's possible to see, like, where was he? Where was he held? What were the conditions like? You know, who else was there um, as well from sort of that is like, noted down in Sikh history as well? So on my mom's side, you you had this sort of, sort of politically engaged, really strong individual. And my nan was probably a little girl when her father was taken. And she spoke of stories like, you know, in those days, um, you're looking at, you're living in a rural village and there were times, like, it was just her and her mom. And, my, you know, I remember my mom telling me that her mom used to have to wear a turban and pretend to be a man to go and work on the fields so oh, that, wow. you know, so that she could sort of stay protected and, you know, um, yeah. And, you know, look after her and her mom basically. And I can't imagine what those days must've been like for a man to make that decision to leave his mm. little girl and wife behind for something that he believed in and the impact of that on my grandmother, you know, um, and, and, you know, it, these are things that, like, I think of only now I'm sort of really thinking about and what what has that mean in terms of the patterns that then have continued in our sort of family. And it's just something that I think I'm starting to have a bit more of a consciousness about. I just haven't been really been able to think about that. So on the one hand, you had this individual who had, has, you know, had such a, a presence um you know, in the sort of the stories that we were told growing up. On the other hand, my dad's side of the family, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, her father, so my great, another great grandfather on my, my dad's side, he basically was employed by the British Indian Army at that point. So okay. he actually, during World War One, he actually fought in Basra, um, okay. basically, and he his elbow was bombed. And so, um, you know, and, and when I, I spoke to my dad's um, uncle about this, so his son, um, who is now also elderly. And, you know, um, last time I went, I kind of thought this is my opportunity to really learn more about this man. Um, again, I met him when he when I was very little, mm -hmm. um, you know, so we didn't get a chance to talk a, a, about this directly. But I spoke to him about his experiences and he said, you know, he was sent to Basra with just six months of training um, and when he went there, his elbow was bombed. And when he came back, he never, the elbow never recovered. 
So as part of sort of being in the British Indian Army, he was then employed in the British Indian Police. And one of the things I didn't know is that part of being part in the British Indian Police, they also used to have um, sort of people um, of faith also employed, I think, within the British Indian Police. And I don't quite know how that worked out. So my great grandfather sort of was employed by the British Indian Police in some way to sort of play some like faith based role um, within um, that sort of you know space and I don't really know what that looks like um, and um, he he sort of uh, he retired from um, sort of the, the the British Indian Police and he was also given the opportunity to then come abroad basically so the actual sort of Britain actually continued to pay him a pension as part of being the British Indian Army until he died back I think in the 80s so he was still receiving a pension wow. um, even after wow. independence and so um, he sort of retired and then he went back into farming and then he met my, um, you know, grandmother who actually wasn't from a Sikh background. She was from a Hindu background, a conveniently a fact that my dad decided not to tell us. <laughs> um, but it turns so it Is that something out, that would have, would, would, Sorry, that have would that have caused strife? And you know, I, it's really hard to say, like, and I, I just... It's hard to say this because I think that I've not looked at the history of this, basically. So it's a, it's a real blind spot. My When I sort of like, when I hear what my dad used to say and when I hear the stories of the time, the one thing that my grandfather used to say to my dad is that he missed his Muslim friends. Like, you know, before 1947 happened, there were a lot of um, Muslim families that used to live in the area that even like that, you know, my my dad came from. And I didn't even know until probably about mm, 10 years ago that my grandfather ha- had actually donated land to some um, Muslim fakirs. And fakirs are people who basically dedicate their, their life to religion and spiritual discipline. And there's this, hot, you know, there's this place of worship that Muslims go to and the land was actually donated by my grandfather. And so, you know, it's my, my sense is that the sort of the religious identities, I just feel like they didn't matter as much in those days. I think the caste system probably did. And I think that for you to, you know, that's my sort of subjective, just sort of inkling sense of it. I think the caste system did and that, you know, if you married somebody outside of your faith, they, you probably um, likely married into somebody of a similar caste. But, you know, my, like my dad's generation, like my dad conveniently didn't tell us that actually our, his grandmother, so his mom's mom was actually a Hindu woman basically and that her father was a train driver you know so she came from some sort of like an educated background but again don't know anything about her so it's kind of so I think so, go for it um, you you mentioned two things there which I have a very limited knowledge of and potentially people who are listening might have no knowledge of so I just wanted to ask you so you mentioned 1947 and the caste system so mm-hmm. Two questions. What what happened in 1947 and what's the caste system? So um, let's start with 1947. So 1947 um, was the year where um, India became independent. 
And during that time, there were two parts of India that were split, basically two states, like originally sort of, I guess, royal states back in the days um, that were split. Um, uh, Because basically, it was thought at the time by the sort of powers that be that actually having splitting the country, and then having, um, you know, a a particular place um, where um, Muslim people could live, um, mm-hmm. would be safer because there were a lot of communal riots um, that were taking place. Right. Um, and, and and that's sort of quite difficult to sort of think about that because, you know, it's difficult to sort of know, like, to what extent was that, to what extent was that, you know, based on the relationships that had existed for so many years before that, basically, and to what extent was that, engineered we just don't know i just don't know have a you know a sense of that and i'm sure like people historical experts probably do have a better sense of that basically i kind of think of it from a perspective of my grandparents who lost friends and never saw them again basically you know um and that must have been really difficult for people traumatizing for the people leaving their friends behind and traumatizing for the people who were left behind and didn't see their those friends um and families you know um again so Punjab was actually one of the states so it's Punjab and Bengal that were actually split so what you have right now and in Pakistan is East Punjab basically and what is of Punjab in India is what we have West Punjab and that's really difficult for this that's all that's traumatizing in itself I think um you know because um, Sikhism was founded in Pakistan um basically the 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 Guru Nanak Dev Ji who's the founder of Sikhism was born in Pakistan um so Nangana Sahib you know is the his his birthplace basically um mm-hmm. and you know um you you have to sort of um yeah you have to sort of now get a visa and you know and and um it, to make your way to a different country mm-hmm. um when there is so much sort of history and heritage and relationships and love and you know when I think about that and I think and, and it, you know this is probably I, I can't speak for the Bengali and the Bangladeshi experience as well but I think about the damage that that has done to sort of relationships basically and the love and that people had and the trust and for me I think through my family I feel like the legacy of that continues and I talk to people of my generation and I feel like the legacy continues of just the impact that that time has had on people from you know southeast asian communities but also in the southeast asia diaspora so 1947 were a very like very very sort of um important year in the sort of the um southeast asian calendar and also i think the ripples of that are very still real like you're Mm. talking almost 80 years on basically it's really interesting Um, i'm just just reflecting while you're talking sorry to cut across you um that it's probably a similar i i mean there will be people listening who'll be shaking their heads at me for not knowing this but i'm sure it's around a similar sort of time that the uk drew up boundaries and borders in israel and palestine and we like i think when we think of kind of sacred lands in the west we potentially think about places like jerusalem where these three huge world religions christianity judaism and islam all have kind of a claim you know their stories all have roots there and that kind of stuff and there's something about our western interference which really fucked that place up basically and still to this day obviously it's in the news it's continuing to be fucked up yeah. by it 
And it's just really interesting comparing that to what you're describing, because actually India is quite similar in the sense that it's got, well, more than three. It's got, so you've got Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Gen- Islam as well, yeah, all of whom have yeah. stories that are rooted there in India yeah, or, or in, in the subcontinent anyway. Um, yeah, and yeah. Western interference, drawing up borders, dividing people, causing conflict even now, 80 years later. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, I think, I think sort of the post-colonial sort of narrative that we live in today. I think that I only sort of was starting to almost come to terms with it and its sort of tangible, you know, impact on me. Probably in my late twenties and my sort of my 30s basically you know I'm in my late 30s now and approaching my 40s and you know I I think that and this is partly why I'm really interested in sort of the broader ideologies because I don't think that there's enough consciousness and that's what actually faith really helps me to think about um is the bigger picture is the ideologies at play and in some ways you know for me you, you know faith is a form of ideology spiritual ideology mm-hmm. um and because you're you know i you know i am sort of um if i do my morning prayer i am being asked questions you know to think about what is the impact of my actions on others basically and what's been really difficult i think sort of to try and understand in my 20s and my 30s is how do you stay sort of true and act authentically from as like how do I do that as a Sikh person within the broader structures and cultures at play where other ideologies at play Mm. and I feel those tensions you know um so for me like for example I find job titles really difficult I find hierarchies really difficult because you know in Sikhism one of the things that I was raised with or I truly believe in even though that you know a caste system has been very real in my life is that we are all equal um you know and I believe in that um as well and you know it's that's been really it's been but it's been really difficult to practice that because I came from a family that does believe in the caste system um and so and you know and so here you are as a young person you're reading up you know reading about your faith and what your faith teach what faith teaches you then you see your culture and you see your culture practicing something different and mm. it's how how do you how do you ask those kind of questions to the people who in some ways like are older than you and have more experience than you and are guiding you but you're seeing stuff and they're not quite seeing it and they are stuck in their mindsets mm. so that's been a really really difficult part of my life to navigate through basically with you know, um, elders in our in, in in my family. I think the other thing that I find really uh, that has been something really difficult to navigate through is faith in the workplace because we spend so much time in the workplace, basically. And you know, coming back to the point around equality, you know, I sort of feel like in some ways job titles and structures and hierarchies bring out the ego in me. Of course, you know, and that makes me feel really uncomfortable. Like. Mm-hmm that, uh, you know, these sort of broader structures and cultures are in play. And, you know, I get seduced by that. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I can see that it sort of brings out the ego and it brings out the sort of the insecurities. And 
it's really hard to know how do you sit with that like how do you sit with that basically mm-hmm. you know and ultimately like you know we are all sort of the structures are they're designed to give us an aspiration like it's it's you know it's a career ladder you know a ladder for a reason and I'm just like well what if you didn't want a ladder what if you just wanted you know a, a forward-looking pathway that was just like you know on a, on a on a on a sort of a plain path basically that you just wanted to get a sense of just moving forward yeah. rather than moving upwards basically you know what what does that look like and um you know and and it's I think sort of the ultimate aspiration is around sort of leadership and, you know, I, I, what if, you know, you're not looking for that, mm. you know? Um, and I find sort of, you know, I've been sort of following Carlsat Aid for quite some time and Carlsat Aid is a charity and they've, they've, I think they've just been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, but the guy who ru- runs it, Ravi Singh, you know, they do a lot of relief work around the world. It doesn't matter of whose faith or anything like that as long as there's a need, there is a need for us to be, you know, supporting humanity. And he talks a lot about servant leadership. And I feel like, particularly because my background is coming from the voluntary community and social enterprise sector, there's a real, there's a real need, I feel like, to reflect on what does that mean, like servant leadership? Yeah. You know, what does that look like? You know, what does it look like to not what does it look like to not have sort of leadership and just all be servants to humanity? Basically, we're all serving humanity and we're all serving the very best for the planet. And I think, you know, the, the question around what does my sort of faith do for me? Sikhism is all about, you know, learning and being a learner. And if there's one thing that I think Sikhism has always given me, it's the ability to question and to question, to ask really powerful questions. Mm. Um, and I think if we don't do that, I think we we do an injustice to really think, you know, to not blind blindly be just sort of following the wider structures and cultures at play and not really be questioning them. Um, if they're not if they're not working for you as an individual, if they're not working for others, then that feels like something that we should be doing, and it's healthy to do as sort of values and cultures and technology and you know knowledge and sort of all of this evolves. We should be doing that. I so think I, you, yeah, so I think that's what that what that's what it does for me. Absolutely, and that that you raise such an interesting and challenging um, point about about having a religious faith, and well, so so you and I both have a religious faith, albeit different faiths. For you, it's Sikhism. For me, it's Christianity. But we live in the same culture, so literally in the same workplace, but also more broadly, we're both in the southeast of England in Western culture in a fairly affluent culture and that kind of thing. And there are cultural scripts, which we're constantly reading and imbibing. And there are the kind of religion tradition kind of scripts that we're working with as well. And how those two things meet can be a really creative thing and it can be a really challenging thing. So uh, for, in a culture, for example, like, you know, like Western neoliberal kind of small C conservative culture that we're kind of living at, at the moment, mm-hmm. um, there is that sense of climbing the ladder, ma- you know, making money, career progression, making a name yeah. for yourself, getting recognized, that kind of thing. Whereas certainly in Christianity, and I'm sure there are parallels in Sikhism, there's a narrative of actually moving down the ladder to be with the poor, to be with the people who are at the bottom of the ladder, both in a kind of humanitarian help them lift them out of poverty kind of a way, but also in a kind of 
to use Christian language, that's where you'll find Christ. That's what, you know, if you're looking for wholeness, for peace, for fulfillment, you won't find it at the top of the ladder. You'll yeah. find it by moving down, from moving away from that kind of fast-paced, high-energy, frenetic, you know, yeah. self-serving kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that religion's always on this battle with culture where it either gets in bed with culture completely, and that's where you get horrible things like the Crusades, you know, where yeah. religion is used to justify cultural prejudices or whatever. Um, or on the other hand, you have religion kind of seeing itself as like a counterculture, which can also lead to horrible things. That's where things like homophobia and stuff like that come yeah. in, you know, where you're resisting the kind of prevalent message of, of the day. Um, and it's just such a challenge, isn't it? That I, that actually I am a part of, I can't deny that I'm a part of a neoliberal capital, small C conservative, Southeast of England culture. And that's shaped me and that's part of who I am. And actually those values are there somewhere in me as well. And they're constantly rubbing up against my faith, my spirituality, my kind of sense of belief. And sometimes creative, cool things emerge. This podcast, you could argue, is a way that religion and culture meet. But sometimes it can be quite a a difficult kind of space to occupy where you're really not sure which script to follow. Um, And I've definitely fallen too far on either side. Um, And, you know, going too far on the religious side, you end up with a kind of self-flagellation thing, you know, where you, 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 well, for me anyway, like I didn't want, you know, uh, praise is bad. Self-seeking stuff is bad. Making money is bad, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, But actually that's not all that healthy either. Yeah. Anyway, I waffled there for a little bit. Um, but no, it's really, I, really interesting. All interesting. Cool. I'd love to know, so at what point in your life, so you, so you were born here in the UK, but you grew up a bit in India. Is that right? You lived in India as a, as a I young did, girl. I did, I did. Yeah, and, I lived for about two years in India. Oh, is that it? It was just for two years. Okay, I yeah. thought it was longer than that. But yeah, it, I, I just wonder at what point in that journey your your family's history and tradition relationship with sikhism you know your hindu grandmother that you mentioned all that kind of stuff at what point did you start to become kind of aware of what that meant for you like at what point did faith that kind of tradition come alive for you was there something that led to it or is it just something that kind of gradually grew i think i think it sort of started for me in my early teenage years basically um you know and um yeah. Um, so I remember, you know, I think being sort of a, a daughter um, within sort of the family that I came from, um, it, it sort of came with, you know, certain nuances, basically. Um, you know, I think sort of my my the the my experience was. It, patriarchy is still very strong basically um you know when those struct within sort of the structure and the cultures that sort of that i um grew up in basically and i I can't speak widely because it's not fair for me to say that because i know that you know there are other women who have had different experiences um to me and i think sort of you know coming back to that point around um hearing you know um my parents or people who were you know adults as growing up and talking about things like caste and talking um 
about, you know, um, men's place in society and women's place in society. And I don't know why it just always felt like on a sort of a deeper level, didn't quite seem to me to be, you know, um, I, I just, I didn't, I couldn't trust that messaging for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and my sister's always said that, you know, even when I was younger, um, you know, and you know, and you know, Tim, that, you know, I like asking questions and being that little bit of, you know, that, that little bit of a rebel, um, in me that likes mm-hmm. to sort of push the thinking. And, you know, I think that, um, it was probably in me from quite a young age and I don't know what, maybe that was a personality thing. Um, but I remember sort of around 11, 12, 13, sort of starting to be curious about, well, I'm hearing all of this stuff, but what is it that my faith is actually saying, you know, um, that, and, and what does that mean for me? Um, and I'm not sure it was a particular event. I think it was just how I was feeling at the time. Um, and one of the things I will say about my my dad is, you know, he made the space for us to learn about our faith, basically. Whenever we went to India, we would always go to, to places of worship. Mm-hmm. And my parents always made it their business to make sure we did that. And that, it's wonderful because it really sort of makes that history so much more alive that this temple marks this particular event at this particular point in time where people were fighting for justice or this, that, and the other, mm. you know, that, um, you know, there's a temple where, you know, the 10th Guru's two youngest sons were buried alive because they refused to bow down and become and, and, and convert to another faith, you know, um, and they were fighting for what they believed in basically. And you hear these stories and then you go there and you see it and you see that wall for yourself and mm-hmm. you can't escape that. And that's what, you know, going to Jerusalem is like, you know, it's what going to sort of Mecca is like. It's it's sort of, it's there, it's tangible. Yeah. And you can't escape that sense of history and that heritage that you've been told stories about. You know, it's sort of, you either walk away from it or you accept it. And I completely accepted it because I'd, I'd been exposed to those places from a quite young age, probably like from four or five years old, actually. Because I remember our parents taking us to Pakistan which was not done actually that much in back in the 80s. And we went to the birthplace, you know, of Sikhism and we went to these places that were very significant. And I remember like the last time I went on a holiday with my parents, our dad sort of, my sister and I sort of went on a holiday with our, our parents and we went all the way to this island called Rameshwaram, which is right on the bottom of the tip in India between Sri Lanka and the Indian and, and, and India. And there, and what you find in Rameshwaram is the temple that has the feet of Guru Nanak Dev Ji stamped there, basically. Oh wow! Well, he had made his way all the way, all his way all the way through India in order to then get to other places in Asia, and that marks that 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 he was there. And so, tangibly, you feel like you are walking in the footprints of someone who has had such a massive influence on your life basically Mm. because of the messages that he was trying to convey around justice and equality and serving humanity um and i think sort of like those kind of like experiences and picking up on that and being in that sort of spiritual space and then sort of hearing then these all these cultural sort of messages um and seeing it as well and not quite sort of feeling right um, you know, I both my sister and I sort of started um, basically reading up on our faith. Um, you know, we started doing our morning prayers and our sort of evening prayers. So directly getting the message of what was our guru saying to us, like the Bible. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that sort of really then started to help me to start questioning and challenging some of the sort of the cultural messages and the practices were at play within my home environment. Um, and I, and, and, you know, and in some, and it's really difficult for, um, you know, for a father who's been brought up in a, like a highly patriarchal environment to then have daughters who are then questioning some of the messages that are coming out mm. from him, basically. I can imagine. Um, you know, and I think I could feel that sort of um, tension, basically. Um, and, you know, our parents hadn't, they, number one, they didn't have, uh, you know, a decent level of education. My dad did, my mom not so much. So they, he had a decent level of literacy and not my mom didn't so much. But then they had didn't have the Western education as well and they hadn't been through the Western model. And then on mm. top of that, they'd been brought up in this culture, which in some ways felt quite incongruous to the faith. Yeah. So you've got all of these complexities and layers at play. And how do you as a teenager even like think about navigating through that? Yeah. And then I think at university, sort of studying a subject like law and then going on to study um, human rights law made that even stronger, um, I think, sort of, that is, you know, um, as part of that, you know, uh, looking at, you know, the sort of the Israel-Palestine division and looking at politicized religion and, you know, its impact and sort of communal sort of ideologies. I couldn't escape that because that's sort of the discipline that I'd chosen to sort of learn more about. Mm. as well and I think what sort of what I hadn't expected I think in my 20s is the shift from the home environment moving to London and then sort of being in the workplace and not really being not having a sense of consciousness of sort of the the wider ideologies that were at play as you were saying Tim you know sort of neoliberalism and sort of the patriarchy and sort of being in quite sort of predominantly white spaces um and, you know, and all of the sort of the other sort of the ideologies that sort of come into that. And I think that I was so sort of um, focused on sort of just career and sort of building my experience and my knowledge. I, I, I almost kind of feel like my connection with my faith and that ability, I felt like sort of became weaker. Mm. And I think partly it was because as a teenager in university, I'd had more time to sort of connect with that part of my life. Yeah. And I think that when you're in your 20s, nobody says that to you, do I want to go back to my 20s? No way. It's too much <laughs> work. Basically trying to, you know, trying to prove yourself to your employers, one employer after another. Absolutely. And you're working hard and, you know, you're trying to sort of move up that ladder because you get seduced by it. And, you know, and all of the, the sort of try, trying to get onto the property ladder again. Mm. And I think, like, I just, I got to a point where in my sort of early 30s, I, it, made, it started making me feel ill, right? I just, like, was working so much at one point that I was doing, like, 60 hours or something, and it started making me ill. And I basically went to the doctor, and um, she signed me off for a few weeks. And it was the first time um, that I'd experienced that sort of sort of level that that's like that kind of severe exhaustion in my life basically yeah yeah um and it was quite scary because I couldn't even lift my hand from the sofa you know because because the exhaustion was so bad um and I think sort of for me um it didn't really create that much change um in the workplace and 
going into other workplaces, it just felt like the same patterns that you just mm-hmm. expected to invest this time. And, you know, your ambition is sort of demonstrated by how many hours you put in, basically. Like, and I'm, you know, I like to work hard as much as another person. Um, and I'll put in the extra hours if that's what's required to get the job done. But, you know, my, my, I think at that, that time, I just realized that my, my health and my family was more important. And what yeah. also happened around the same time was that one of my best friends, I lost one of my best friends from university to a tragic car accident. And she was 31 at the time, wow. you know, and it just sort of was the first time I'd lost someone in my life who I was sort of relatively close to. And mm. situations like that, just really when all of this is happening and then something like that happens, it just makes you want to step back and just go, what the hell is going on, basically? Mm. And I think I sort of, after, you know, during that time, I started sort of freelancing. Then I joined, you know, decided, okay, I've nearly done a decade in London. Let's see if I can, you know, get a little bit more experience and decided to do that. And, but I just... At the bottom of my mind, I think more what I was starting to do, I think, was, and I, I, I don't even think I probably realized it at the time, I was starting to connect more with my faith. And it was bumpy, basically. Yeah. There were times when I just felt really angry. And I just, you know, and even now there are times, you know, where I, when I'm so angry, I find it really difficult to do my morning prayer. And actually, that's the time you should be doing it. But I, I actually can't bring yeah. myself to do my morning prayer or to do a prayer in the evening or, you know, and so there are times when the best thing for me to do, the most uh, faith related act I can do is actually to listen to seek hymns. Um, and then when I do that, there's, mm. they're just so spiritual that I just start crying. And so they're really triggering. Yeah. Um, and so I think what my thirties has done is they've given me just, um, you know, the work has been there. The pressure has been there. But then on some level, I've also sort of just taken the, 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 the take, uh, brought in the intention to take a step back and just sort of think what the hell is going on. And, you know, and that's been from a social justice lens, you know, so the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, last year was for me coming, um, you know, um, and you know, I think this social justice, social injustice topics, you know, um, generally, um, I just felt, you know, th- these questions were sort of like coming to my mind to say, like, why is this happening? Why is this going on? Like, what's at play here? And then you've got the anger, then you've got the disillusionment, then you've got the frustration, then you've got this sense of numbness because you don't know what to do. Um, and, you know, I think um, it's my faith that actually, I think I think it's my faith that either consciously, subconsciously, unconsciously teaches me to open my eyes and see that stuff. Um, and I'm not sure that I would be able to have my eyes open in that way if I wasn't sort of connected to my faith in some way. I'm not sure I would have that. And I think sort of one of the things that I've appreciated and also accepted, appreciated, but it's been hard to come to terms with as well is one, I think the spiritual lens, you know, helps you to have that sort of almost um, questioning, sort of challenging ability. Then I think on top of that, when you're from a diaspora community and you were talking about, you know, um, growing up in a very different sort of culture um, in a different part of the world mm-hmm. with all these ideologies at play, you know, it gives you a 
inherently a comparative perspective. You constantly, it's always there. Sometimes you don't even know it's there, but mm-hmm. you, it, the way in which you're talking, the way in which you're seeing things, like now I'm more sort of attuned to it. I can see things from a comparative lens. And it's taken me a long time to accept that not many people have that capability. I think it's a privilege because it gives me a di- yeah. like a sort of, you know, like Marvel multiverse sort of way of thinking about things. <laughs> it feels a bit like that. It's like a multifaceted way of thinking about things. And when I go and, you know, visit countries in South America or East Asia or Africa, you when you sort of have that, when you're sort of raised in that sort of way where you have that comparative perspective, you're able, I just feel like you're able to take so much more, even when you go to other cultures um, and other Mm. parts of the world, because you just sort of, you know, um, are able to compare and sort of see like, okay, well, why are people doing it that way? Why have we done it that way? And also like some patterns as well. So, you Mm. know, for me, it was really interesting that going to Machu Picchu, that was a temple for the sun god. (laughs) You know, and then it was like, that's yeah, really interesting yeah. that this is an ancient culture that worshiped the sun god and that we have in the Hindu culture, Surya Dev, who is also the sun god. And so you start mm. picking up on these patterns, um, you know, around sort of history in different corners of the world, which is just really, um, I find it really fascinating, um, basically. And it, I just feel like it really enriches my life in a way that I don't think I'd appreciated sort of growing up. But again, it's taken me probably. And it's taken me quite a long time to sort of recognize that actually, um, because yeah. in so, you know, in a lot for a long time, I didn't even recognize that I was doing that. Um, so yeah, I think sort of, I don't know if, you know, I can't remember what the question that you asked me, Tim, but you know, well, let, let me tell you, cause it, it's, it's really interesting. I've been, I've been listening to you talk. And so my question was about when your faith came to mean something for you and you talked about, a number of themes that people often talk about when kind of on the, on the subject of kind of coming to religion. So you talked about the experience of feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourself, something older than yourself, visiting these places of historical significance. Um, you talked about witnessing injustice and feeling angry about injustice. You talked about an experience of burnout, stress, of, of the things that you'd been taught to pursue, not giving you the happiness that, that they had promised. Um, yeah. And these are these are themes that I think often come up in conversations about what led you to faith, what led you to a sense of spirituality, mm-hmm. or even, you know, taking it completely outside of a spiritual religious framework, but what led you to kind of question the meaning of life and the purpose of life and what you're doing. Like these are kinds of themes that come up often. But there's one thing you said, which I found really interesting, and I wondered if I could ask you a little bit more of, which was quite early on after I'd asked you that question, you talked about the experience of, how do I put this? The, the, the humanization of your parents. Um, and what I mean by that is, so you specifically talked about your parents having grown up in quite a patriarchal society and having held values and traditions, which Mm. you pushed back against and rebelled against a little Mm. bit. And there's a moment in growing up, I think that all of us experience where your parents stop being, you, you know, when you're, when you're, before you hit teenager, before you hit adolescence, your parents know everything. They're like, 
the the oracle who have all of the answers and will keep you safe and provide everything for you and there's never any doubt and then when you become a teenager your parents are dickheads and you hate them and they can't do anything right but then there's that moment and i guess for most people that happens in their early 20s certainly it did for me where your parents just become human beings uh Mm -hmm. human beings who you're grateful for because they tried their best but human beings who you also realize just like you just like all of us have their failings and have their have their own struggles and weaknesses and that kind of thing for me there was a real crystal moment crystallizing moment um when my dad came out uh when i was in my early 20s um and it's like he has given me permission to talk about this on the podcast mm-hmm. so it's all cool but um there the, i remember there was a moment where you know on the day that he came out it shifted my perspective of him and my parents, not in a way that I was angry or resentful or anything like that, but just in a sense of like, wow, he's just a guy. He's just a guy like me, you know, and he's, he's, he's going through this moment of huge fear and self-discovery and not being sure what the future holds and that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. And that's something that we all go through. Um, and I think that had a really big impact on my faith. Um, yeah. I couldn't exactly articulate what that impact was, but it was around that same sort of time in my life where I moved away from a fundamentalist kind of religion, which is what I'd mm-hmm. grown up in, where religion holds all of the answers and there's only one way, there's only one truth, there's only, you know, it's a very exclusive kind of thing. And it was around the same time in my life where I started to move away from that. And yeah. I wonder if that process of, seeing your parents as human, as human beings. So in your case, recognizing your mom and dad's influences, which they found difficult, Mm. is also part of the kind of unlocking of that bigger picture of religion and where we find meaning. And maybe that helps us to think more critically about those kind of scripts, whether they're religious or cultural or whatever, and begin to see, actually, you know, there's some good here. There's some beauty here. There's also some dark stuff here that's really messed up and isn't okay. But there's a parallel there, I think, you know. Um, there's a lot of layers, I think, to your reflections there. And, you know, your reflections there and that point, because um, there's this sort of the the layer of my parents' relationship with, it, with each other and sort of how sort of that evolved and what that meant in terms of seeing them in that way. Um, because I think that was very, that was a big sort of, um, that was quite a big thing for me, um, basically, um, particularly in my 20s. And and sort of, I think the third thing that comes to my mind is seeing your parents as human beings when they're going through their own struggles. And there's a particular moment, moment and I'll come to that in a minute as well. And then there's something called hukam. Um, within Sikhism, which is a struggle um, for me to come to terms with. And I'll kind of, you know, I'll I'll talk about that as well in a minute. So the first thing was, uh, you know, around my my parents' relationship. My parents had, you know, an arranged marriage. This is back sort of 1979. My mum was told the day before she got married that, you know, take the day off, you're getting, like, you're getting engaged or something like that, like when my mum talks about it. You know, so here's this 19-year-old woman. She's probably met her husband you know, her to be husband once or twice. And um, yeah, that that's sort of that. And, you know, it, I think sort of when in those dynamics, that was normal, 
you know you didn't question that basically and I, th- I think that those sort of the dynamics of that arrangement and then sort of being raised in a culture that you know was different thought about these sort of areas of life and relationships differently that was sort of I'm not it wasn't a struggle it wasn't a attention it just you just didn't know how to make sense of it basically it was just difficult to really make sense of all of that and wait where do you sit with all of this basically because you know we sort of um I feel like I'm sort of that generation where we you know adopted and adapted some of the western practices around sort of dating and this that and the other um and that is very difficult for your for parents from that generation who've experienced things so differently to then come to terms with a different way of doing things, you know, or they just want you to meet someone, get married within a year and thank you, off you go, basically. Mm. You know, that was sort of like my personal narrative in my sort of 20s. Um, and I think sort of at that time, what sort of what I saw happening was that, you know, we are as a, as a, as a sort of like, a, you know, intergenerational, those things are really playing out and you're trying to figure all of that this messiness that's the best way to describe this messiness and trying to navigate through that and trying to make some sense of it and trying to do the right thing by the people you love but also by yourself as an individual as well yeah there's no right or wrong answer there was no right or wrong answer for me there anyway you know you fluctuate as well within that um and what I saw within that sort of messiness is actually my parents becoming more friends I think partly that was helped by the fact that all their children sort of have moved to the city because, you know, they were focused on their careers during that time. And so they were there. They they were almost forced into each other's company in a way they hadn't been since they probably first got married. Mm. Um, and that was sort of, I think, a, a quite, um, not a moment, it was a really nice sort of evolutionary journey in their relationship to see that, that they were, you know, becoming sort of companions and friendship in a way that we hadn't seen before. So that's kind of like, you know, one part of that sort of question. The second part, I think, is sort of this was just around the time where I'd lost my best friend. My dad had actually had a stroke. So he was diabetic. um, And, you know, he his first language was not English. His mother tongue was not English. And we were aware that he was diabetic, but we didn't know how bad his diabetes was. He's kind of he was kind of he kind of hid it from us. Right. Um, in a way, um, and his GPs had been advising him to take insulin for years. Otherwise, Mr. Singh, you know, you're going to have a stroke. And he just didn't sort of listen to them. Um, you know, he'd listen to other people from within the community. You know, always fine. You don't need that. You know, you don't need to get an injection. Just make, just watch what you eat. And you know, these kind of like things came into play. And he ended up having a really bad stroke. And so sort of, I think this was about 2014. And I think that that sort of really shifted the way in which he saw us and the way in which we saw him, because, you know, we'd always sort of grown up a little bit of fear of our dad, actually, because he was this patriarchal sort of authoritative figure. And all of a sudden, he's a human being vulnerable mm-hmm. with his own struggles, just like the rest of us. Um, and I think that or I saw I think the sort of the stroke mentally sort of had and emotionally had an impact on my dad in a way that we didn't expect. Like, you know, he would he was a lot more emotional than he'd yeah. ever been. Like he would start 
being tearful whenever he'd see someone if he'd see his children when we came down from London through to you know where they lived and you know he would get upset when we'd see it because he was just sort of happy to see us you know um I noticed my parents sort of would drive down to see me and my sister a lot more and you know um and it just he was just happy to sort of like see us Mm and you know and so that sort of I think moment really shifted and I can I I remember reflect back on that time and I think that we were just spending more time as a family in a way that we hadn't in our 20s basically because we were trying to figure out all of this messiness between us as two different Mm -hmm. generations and in my early 30s I felt like that started shifting slightly and we were just able to have a bit more grown-up conversations as well um and then the, I think the third thing, sort of coming back to the point around sort of hukum, which is acceptance. So, you know, in Sikhism, you know, we are taught that um, things happen to you and they are part of the, the 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 higher command that is there for your life. My life has, my sort of personal trajectory has not been typical of a Sikh woman <laughs> in quite a lot okay. of ways, basically, personally, um, you know, um, and it's, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of coming to terms with the fact that I am on this journey for whatever reason I am on this journey for on, basically, I am, you know, other, other trajectories and journeys were not for me. Um, we're not meant for me what's meant for me is meant for me um and you know hukum is about accepting that and letting go and I think that the experiences that I think I've had in my 30s have almost sort of it's almost being forcefully taught the capability to let go um you know because there are events that have happened in the last sort of I'd probably say eight to nine years, which were out of my control. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I'm sort of in that sort of space and you're just struggling and upset or angry, um, you know, and sort of just not feeling I want to connect with my faith, there's a part of me that's like, this is the wider command for me. This is the large, you know, the higher command for me, for my life. And who knows what these events mean for my life going forward I have no idea where it's going to end but I think that I think sort of what I'm sort of like trying to where I'm at right now is thinking about sort of and exploring now how do I connect more deeply with my faith because I think I'm getting to that point in my life where I feel like I want a more deeper connection and I want to have more time for my faith, basically. And I just haven't had that in my 20s and my 30s. And, you know, I love working and I'm a hard worker. But for me, I I just miss spending my time in spiritually, um, spiritually strengthening and growing. And I feel mm-hmm. like I just have another time to do that, um, you know, so... I'm I'm conscious um, and actually so is my sister about of you know we have a saying that um, within our evening prayer that you know hey life is shortening day and night what are you doing you yeah. know and so when I hear like my uncle or whoever saying you know life is long and you know you need to think about that <laughs> life is short from my perspective <laughs> You know, life is short. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. don't have a lot of time here with the people we care about on this planet. 
And somebody sort of expressed it so nicely that everything here is on rent for us. What we own, where we live, this planet, you know, we're renting it because it's going to go to someone else in the future when you're not yeah. no longer going to be around, when you're, you know, in the ground or you're sort of ashes and dust. So I think the events of my 30s have shifted my mindset so profoundly in thinking about my what it is that I want, you know, what's mm-hmm. the place for my faith within that? What does that mean for what I want to do, where I want to go? You know, um, success, just I really don't like the word successful. I wish we'd kind of delete that from the dictionary for me. For me, it's more about deepening, strengthening, growing in a way that is meaningful to me where you know when I'm 60 I'm like and something happens I just want to be able to turn around and say to people you know what let go I'm all right I'm ready basically yeah Yeah. you know like if that that sort of like forget about success if I can get to a point where I'm at that end point in my life and I can turn around and say to my loved ones to say I'm ready to let go you guys let go I've done what I wanted to do and I feel like sort of, you know, I've earned those, I hate saying it so crudely, but those sort of, those spiritual points that I wanted to earn, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, but that requires conscious effort and time. And, um, and that's where the struggle lies, is within sort of, you know, you're paying the mortgage and working for a living and all these responsibilities of family mm-hmm. and then, you know, living up to all these duties as a daughter, a sister, a mother, and so on and so forth, making the time for that. There's only so many hours in the day. And so, you know, this is where I'm at the moment is how do I consciously start doing that in my life in a way where I'm able to sort of live the kind of life that I feel more is more connected to what I want, where I want to be going in the future. And I don't have the answer to that. That's going to be a journey in itself. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you, you just made me think. There's, I've had a few conversations with friends recently who were getting themselves really quite worked up um, about issues which they had no control over, and I found myself wanting to say, "Just care less. Like you, mm-hmm. do, you don't need to care that much about this." And as is always the case, where uh, like when you find yourself thinking something a lot about somebody else, it's often relevant to you. And actually, that's the advice that I find myself trying to give myself now. You know, just like just care a little bit less. You don't need to be so anxious about this. And uh, that that's a kind of flippant way of putting it. But the the spiritual truth with you, which you touched on then with regards to your dad, but also with regards to yourself, is and I think this is pretty universal across all of the big religions and spiritual traditions is the idea of i get like to use the 12 step language admitting powerlessness you know that's the mm-hmm. first step in recovery for alcoholics mm-hmm. is admit you're powerless or is it first maybe to second i can't remember um but it's it's a significant step which is, seems so countercultural when all of the prevailing messages are climb the ladder work harder crank the wheel a little bit harder you earn know that power. kind of thing earn power that's right earn and you power. have to and if you don't get it it's your fault because you didn't work hard enough or whatever yeah but actually the spiritual truth is you can't let you can't go. you can't yeah, just let like, go just let go like power scares me i think and that again comes from the spiritual side like money and power scare me because i find yeah. them you know, I find them corrupting forces, basically. 100%. Um, yeah. And, you know, I am a human just like everybody else. And kind of coming back to the point, ego insecurities, just like everybody else. I see that within myself. And so that's why those kind of influences scare me. 
Um, you know, and then when you were talking about care less as well, Tim, I think for me, it's, I think it's getting real clarity on what do I really care about? And I think often we don't take a step back yes. and really think about, right, if I was going to die tomorrow, one of the top three things I really care about right now that I would absolutely want to be doing in my life to kind of say yeah. to myself, yeah, I'm ready. Like I've done what I wanted to do. And I think that it's, when I've sort of asked myself those questions, it's given me a really good sense of, yeah, this is what like this means to me and all of this stuff, like that's just not for my that's not for me, it's not for my journey. So we'll see, we'll see like, you know, what happens now basically. I also am conscious that you asked yeah. me about the caste system and I never explained it. <laughs> so for your listeners who Oh uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So for the, for so it's di- I, it's difficult to sort of put a definition behind the caste system, but in essence, um, it comes from, I think, sort of the ancient Hindu texts. Um, and I think, basically, I'm sure that there'll be people out there who will contest this. But what it does is it divides people into sort of different, almost like bands, I guess. So within a feudal system, you know, um, I would typically belong to um, the caste of landowners because my both of my grandfather's were farmers basically then you'll have a different cast of people who earned like through business or something like that basically so it's I think sort of what's interesting I think the caste system is there not just within India more broadly actually um when we think about the aristocracy and the feudal system mm. and you know we see it I my wife really thrilled quite strongly we definitely see it playing out in inequalities and how they're perpetuated um basically yeah. um but you know it's um it is definitely, I think, um, a topic that is always very live in my world. Um, and so, yeah, so that's why it's kind of come up in that conversation is because it's so it's so deeply entrenched, I feel, in the Southeast Asian community, um, you know, and it's just been re- yeah. very much a live part of my experience growing up and, you know, um, in this community. So, yeah, I don't know if that gives people a clear definition, mm. but definitely that's go really and check helpful. it out on the Internet if you want to learn more about it. Is that right? Yeah, thank you. Um, all right. It's really, it's brilliant. I'm very conscious that I finished my work day, but you haven't, so I don't want to hold you up for it too much. Um, uh, but thank you so much for giving me the time and for contributing to the podcast. And I'm just really glad, Raj, to have you, not just as a manager, but as a co-traveler on this kind of spiritual journey that we're on together. You know, it's great that we can explore this stuff together and um, have these conversations. Uh, I'm, I love I'm grateful word. for you. Co-travelers, I appreciate definitely. it. Definitely definitely the right word um it's been a pleasure yeah. it's actually just really nice being able to talk about this because i just feel like we don't talk about it widely as a society whether that's about spirituality mm. or religion or faith but just for me it's all about higher level of consciousness and so mm. it's just really nice to be able to just have those conversations and explore them from even different faith perspectives you know you coming from yeah. christianity background and me coming from a Sikh background it just it would be really nice if we could sort of think about opening that dialogue up even more um, as well. I think like, I think humanity could do better. <laughs> I think humanity yeah, yeah. benefit Always. from this. Right, I'm back. Um, through the magic of editing, I'm actually only filming this about 30 seconds after I filmed the intro that you watched at the start of this. But you'll see 
through the language that I use shortly, that I'll make it sound like I was there listening to the podcast with you all the time, like this. So that was great, wasn't it? What a cool conversation. Um, thanks so much to Raj for giving me her time to talk to me about faith and family and all that good stuff. Um, I feel grateful to Raj, not just for being here on the podcast, but for being somebody who is interesting and thoughtful and also super compassionate. Um, like, I guess like lots of us, the past year has been pretty intense for me mental health wise. And there have been times at work when it's felt like a bit much. And it's been great to have a manager like Raj who I can be honest about that stuff with and tell her when I'm feeling overwhelmed. I know that there's always compassion and thoughtfulness and integrity uh, waiting for me uh, when I talk to her. Um, so again, thank you, Raj. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, viewers. Um, I don't formally have a guest lined up for the 1st of July yet, but I almost have someone I'm very excited about. Um, I don't want to say, because if it doesn't happen, then that'll be a bummer. It'll be false advertising, um, a form of fraud. But I've been talking to somebody about coming on the podcast, somebody who is a big name, certainly compared to all of the names that I've had so far who have been friends of mine. This is somebody who I don't actually know, but has a pretty significant following uh, already in the podcasting world and on social media and that kind of thing. So that's super exciting. Like I say, I don't wanna make promises I can't keep. So you'll just have to tune in next month to see if that happened or not. And if it doesn't happen, then I will have somebody equally interesting, but maybe not quite as well known. I'll, uh, I'll find someone. Anyway, um, thanks again. Thanks for being here. Uh, I love you. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Some of you, some of you I can't stand, um, but you don't know who you are. Um, the people who I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to. Um, that's it. All right. Enjoy June. Bye.